Hi there, I'm Tom Schultz, host of Voices of Montana, an issue-oriented newsmaker radio program heard weekdays on 18 radio stations with 27 signals all across the Treasure State. Thanks for clicking on the podcast. Please subscribe and we'll do our best to keep you connected. We're also on Facebook at Voices of Montana and on the Internet at VoicesOfMontana.com, where I'd love to hear from you. Contact me at Tom at VoicesOfMontana.com. So the Montana Supreme Court has ruled the state's Department of Environmental Quality did its job correctly on all accounts. And actually, you don't get this that often from the Supreme Court. They pretty much said, wow, you guys did your job quite well in this, in permitting the Black Butte Copper Mine Project. So it's a rare win for resource developers. But what do you read into this? I don't know. I, I don't see a shifting judiciary. I'd like to see that. Um, but when you when you tell this story, you, you'll see community and industry and conservation voices come together. And and it worked. And I'd like to see more of that. We're going to talk more about that today. Nancy Schlepp from Sandfire Resources America in studio today. Owners of the project and Chris Dorrington, Montana's director of the Department of the, uh, the Environmental Quality, the DEQ, alongside today to talk about this unique mining project and this important decision from the state Supreme Court today on Voices. Nancy Schlepp is in studio. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. I'm so glad you are able to come down. I know you've got something going on today, Teaching Leadership Montana. That's pretty cool. We'll talk about that. Absolutely. I just want to give a huge shout out to my husband, Chris, who drove me. The roads weren't great this morning. Ah, uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Partners. Partners are always yes. good. Uh, let's welcome Chris Dorrington here. He's the director of Montana's Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, been doing that. Well, actually, I think you've been with uh, the department there for maybe... Uh, eight years and then three years uh, now as the director. Uh, good morning, Chris. How are you, sir? Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate you coming on. This was a, um, uh, and, and maybe you can describe what really this was. Um, it, it's uh, essentially pretty simple. The Montana Supreme Court had um, not only approved your permit on, on every aspect of it, but I think in there they said, you guys did your job quite well in this. So congratulations on that. What are your thoughts right now? Well, first, it's a huge win for our agency. Uh, the professionals that have poured hours and really years of hard, diligent work to protect Montana's resources but still follow the law and permit uh, those facilities that have met all of their obligations, we we just feel like the Supreme Court stood up uh, strong for the law, strong for our agency, and, and I, just, I just cannot say enough about the professionals who – have worked really diligently uh, to do their job well, worked with uh, Samfire Resources and their staff uh, in order to get answers to really tough questions we posed, uh, answers to, to really stringent uh, uh, standards. And, man, the Supreme Court decision that our agency did not only uh, our job but our job well, and we're very proud of that. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him. You know, what was this this group's you know objections to it? But but Nancy, um, your thoughts on this as well as um, uh, again with Sandfire Resources, this Black Butte project. It it started 2020, I think. It, it takes such a long time. But I think the interesting story here is. Um, this really is development for the 21st century, isn't it? Absolutely. This is this mine is going to be a completely underground mine that is going to have a lot of new technologies, and it can protect the environment pr- completely. And and uh, I would add that the Montana DEQ was hard on us, yeah. and and we were fine with that. That was the right thing to do. That was their job to make sure that they could completely protect the environment, and they diligently 
did that and and we we thank them for for doing that and and being so honest in their work the director director dorrington um has done a great job you know he was with the hard rock mining and and then with um the division and um his leadership has been great through the entire process chris um talk talk more about this then um because th- there are new technologies that technologies um, in this project here. Um, and I think that's what threw some folks off uh, initially, right? Absolutely. There, there are technologies that uh, Sandfire has proposed for this mine that are more protective, uh, both of the water and our air quality and uh, protective of the resource uh, that Montanans want to see protected, for, not only for this generation, but for generations to come. And, uh, as, we, as we held... Uh, held the line on a lot of things. Tintina came forward and said, We're, we'll sign up for that. Uh, unique and, and uh, novel methods for uh, for their waste rock and their tellings, tailings facility is, uh, is going to be something that's both safe and protective. And uh, we like to see both of those in any permit that we issue. When issuing um, this permit then, and then the, the plaintiffs in, in the case, um, Montana Trout Unlimited, uh, Montana Environmental Information Center, um, you also have Earthworks and American Rivers. Um, what were their ob- objections to this? What, um, on legal grounds, uh, what did they file? And initially, what we saw uh, was a contestation of the permit uh, that wasn't protective of, of Montana's resources. It wasn't... Uh, on the tailings facility, it may not. They disagreed that the tailings design was uh, safe and protective, and then also just protective of, of uh, Montana's uh, groundwater and surface water. That there were elements that would be impacted uh, downstream, and you know this is a culturally culturally or natural resource sensitive area, mm-hmm. and we don't want to issue a permit that would harm anything. So we didn't. We we issued a permit that's protected. And Nancy, you know, in in working with the DEQ on this and and encouraging those tough questions as well, um, talk about the process of of you know what they brought forward to you and the changes that that initiated. You know, I th- I think some of those were were more um, on on the detail level of of the scientists. They were uh, yeah. like, you know, we mm-hmm. were, we want to do a tailings, but is this the best way to do it? And they would come back to us and say. We've had comments from the pub public on X, Y, and Z, and we need you to address them and do this better. And we'd be like, okay, we'll do that. And so with the plan that ended up with, I think what we're most proud of is that there will be no tailings left on surface when we are done mm-hmm. with the project. It'll be completely back to agriculture use land. I want to get you to talk about that a little bit more then, because this is uh, a bit unique. Um, it's going to be an underground mine. Uh, but you're not going to have a huge tailing pile because you're going to be reclaiming that back underground, I suppose, with that fill. Yes, half of the tailings will go back underground with cement. And when you grind up something that fine, it doubles in pore space, so you can't fit it back all underground. And so we'll add cement to the other half and put it in a double-lined facility uh, with cement. And then that will get capped and have soil and so, subsoil and soil on top of that. And uh, and that Chris is sort of unique. Talk about how this does this design then um, translate to other potential mine projects, or um, as you look at this, and again with the Supreme Court ruling, good job and, and really really good job on it. Um, what can you take from that that makes the next project a good and really really good job? 
Sure. I think I think there are several facets to that, Tom. Yeah. One is it's just a water protection. I mean that the addressing of, of water, the assessment of water, and then the handling of water during the proposed mine operation. That is that is is going to be uh, something that I. I I see other mines modeling after as a best management practice. Uh, the the treating of the of the tailings, uh, pumping that back into the into the uh, uh, the mined area is a is a really good idea. Having an underground mine to begin with is just a wonderful start because it, less of a scar on the on the landscape and then more easily contained underground. Chris Dorrington is with us again. He's the director of the Montana Department of Environmental Quality. Also chairs Governor Greg Gianforte's housing task force. So we'll we'll have a question or two about that. And of course, uh, Chris, I mean, there's a ton of cases. I think you and I were were chatting. Um, this might clear off one, but there's four or five dozen more um, that you guys are dealing oh, gosh, with. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I mean, we're we're facing a definitely a very strong headwind, headwind uh, with regard to litigation where we. We fight battles on a on a fairly routine basis. This this does put a pin in some of those arguments that the agency isn't issuing protective decisions, though. And, and I think that's a, another one of those things that you, you I try to read into this. What does this mean? I don't know that it's there's a shifting judiciary, uh, but it, it, I have that impression that there's public pressure out there to see the judiciary be a little more. I, I don't know. I w- I would apply you know maybe common sense to these sorts of things. Uh, just your assessment on that um, in, in dealing with uh, the judiciary, uh, that's a, a difficult part of your job, isn't it? It's a very difficult part of our job. We see uh, district court decisions certainly of late have been pretty, pretty hard on the, on the department. Uh, we've seen, we've seen uh, state actions enjoined for reasons that we feel are, are, um, uh, uh, adequately addressed in our permitting process, and also under the Montana Environmental Policy Act or MEPA, uh, we we do a we do a robust analysis. We've uh, disclosed impacts, and we uh, put forward permits that are fit to the standards underlying both air quality, water protection, and natural resource uh, protection. Uh, but the district courts have been hard on us of, of late, uh, and, and certainly that has become what I would consider a tool to slow uh, our decision-making down. I respect the rights of the individuals that, that do bring those cases because they have a valid concern, and uh, I don't think they're doing that maliciously, but I do think that I think we're facing too much litigation at this point as a reflection on how well uh, and how hard we're working to protect Montana. Well, especially if some of these groups, these litigants, are not engaged in the process. So we've talked about it here. You know, lawfare is a, is a term that comes out there. Nancy Schlepp, Vice President of Communications and Government Relations with Sandfire Resources America, also with us here. Um, your comment on that, because you, we go back to 2020 when this project began, but I, I think it began uniquely. When you tell the story, you guys had collaboration. And when I say you guys, it was really the community that uh, that knew that this was an opportunity um, and and they wanted to get out ahead of it. Right. And I, I guess I think that overall that this is a win for for science and for collaboration. And so this project did start back in in 2010. The company gathered baseline data through third-party contractors for years, quality third-party contractors that are Montana companies, and then put in for the mine operating permit in, in 2015, again using third-party uh, companies to, to write that permit 
that were Montana companies. And then, and then once we um, got into that process, uh, all that science goes to the DEQ. Their experts are looking at it. They have a full EIS that is a third-party contractor that we've never worked with that looks at it. And mm-hmm. then at the end of all that, and it says right in the decision of the Montana Supreme Court, is a 90,000-page document of scientific documentation and answering questions from the public that is the collaboration part. And so it's an exhaustive process that was done very well. And we we got a 5-2 decision from the Montana Supreme Court. I think it's a great day for science that this this happened. Do you read anything else into that decision, Chris? Um, you know, as, as you look at that, did anything pop out for you? Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, one of the strongest points that the Supreme Court made was that the agency possesses expertise and that uh, discretion at the agency level that deference to the agency experts is very uh, fit. It's right. The Supreme Court felt is very justified that the agency and the experts were the ones to make those hard, hard decisions and not uh, the district court. And they say in the ruling there, and you can look at it on page eight and nine, uh, the ultimate standard of review is a narrow one. And, and then they, they go on to say, you know, that um, specifically, the court affords great deference to agency decisions implicating substantial agency expertise. Uh, that, for me, is is a place where the court needs to be um, in in, de- in deciding these sorts of things. I'm not sure every court is at that place, but this is a really good uh, start. It's a 5-2 decision um, regarding the Black Butte Copper Project from Sandfire Resources America. It's going, it, it, they, they upheld the DEQ permit approval on all accounts. We're with Nancy Schlepp, Vice President of Communications, Government Relations with Sandfire. And uh, with us for a little while longer here is the Director of Montana's Department of Environmental Quality. Poured a lot of hours on this one, uh, Chris Dorrington. Um, uh, Chris, again, congratulations. I, I appreciate the, the work that you guys put into this. We'll take a quick call from Casey listening in Great Falls because, Casey, thanks uh, for, for, you said you're following along with this with a lot of interest. Yeah, I've, I've went to some of their hearings and Frankly, I, I didn't know. I was kind of pessimistic that this would get get approved. I'm for it. And I have a couple of comments and then a, a question at the end. It's a great thing, but it is going to uh, cause an added uh, inflationary factor in the pro- in the end process. And we have a lot of competitors, China and others, and they don't follow these type of uh, procedures and rules that, that are uh, costly and add a, add a, a bottom line cost to the uh, pro- the product at the end. Also, I wanted to say if, uh, and this is kind of a comment on my part, I think that having a person like Trump in there that uh, tends to point conservative judges has an influence on these types of uh, appeals and, and that. And now my question is, going forward, is uh, uh, can this go to further appeals? Can it be uh, altered by higher authorities? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Thanks for the the comments there as well. And 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 Chris, is this the end of the line for this appeal process? Thanks, Tom, for the question. And and there there is a Supreme Court appeals process. The way I look at it, and this is just Chris talking, Tom. Uh, the way I look at it, that five two decision and the way it was written is very clear, mm, yeah. very decisive, and supportive of the of the hard work that uh, the state and its professionals put into that permit uh, approval. I wouldn't 
say there isn't a chance. I would say there is a process for Supreme Court appeal, but I don't I don't see that happening based on the decision, the way it's written. Well, yeah, and you got to have grounds for an appeal. And it, I think that's this case took away. Maybe I don't know. That's, that's in my opinion. I'm not a I'm not an expert in that regard. Um, anything else you want to offer about this um, this case in particular? And then I'm going to ask a few questions about the housing task force since we got you on the air. Yeah, you bet. Just just a you know a closing comment on mineral development in Montana. Uh, we we hold a we hold a really tough line on on protectiveness. And uh, your caller made a made a, a, a wise point. Uh, there are other other places around the globe that are not as protected as the United States, certainly not as protective as Montana. And the demand for minerals, uh, even in, in renewable energy uh, pressures, is going to just go up. And so uh, we have a Montana company here who has signed up to stringent standards uh, in order to respond to that market demand. Uh, and I, I think it's a good thing that we're not pushing mineral development to third world countries that don't have the environmental protections or the procedures in place in order to hold companies accountable like we will. Uh, and uh, I know that Tintina is signing up for this, but this isn't a set and forget. We're not permitting and then just hoping they do what they said they'll do. We'll be working with them through a compliance process in order to make sure that uh, protections remain in place through the, throughout the operation and development of their their program. I agree with Chris. I think that the the standards are the right thing to do. In fact, we we have a lot of people come through um, the project and give a lot of tours. And there's only one question in all of the ten years I've been doing this that offended me, and it was one that asked, said, "Why don't we just do this in third world countries where, where mm-hmm. we don't have to look at it?" And it's we live in the mm-hmm. world. We have to be cognizant and do this better everywhere and there there is a demand and and so i agree with director dorrington and not only is the deq going to hold us accountable but that we have helped create an independent 501c3 mark county stewardship council which is made up of our local community leaders and 60 percent are from mark county 40 percent are conservation voices from around the area and they also are going to hold our feet to the fire and make sure that we do things well and as well as extra projects to enhance the environment and create economic development and diversity. So um, oversight in two, two fronts for us, and we're happy to have it. Equal parts development, equal parts protection, I think, it was, was the origin Absolutely. Of, of this project. Yeah, um, and, and, and that is setting things right in a lot of ways. Uh, Nancy Schlepp again with um, Sandfire Resources America, the owner of the Black Butte Copper Project. Um, we'll talk more about that here in just a bit. Chris, again, uh, uh, we got a few minutes here. Why don't you catch us up to date on a few things? Uh, um, uh, chair of the Housing Task Force. People might go, well, he's the director of the DEQ. Why is he chairing this Housing Task Force? They might be surprised at how many development projects uh, come before your department, eh? That, that's a great point, Tom. You know, and, uh, you know, shifting hats. Uh, the governor appointed me the chair of the task force, which is a multi-stake, multidisciplinary uh, task force, also bipartisan. And uh, we are—I'm just really proud of the work that the, the task force has, co- has gone through since uh, creation in July of 2022. We uh, advanced ideas for both the executive branch to improve upon uh, the delivery of housing. You know, just our our streamlining and clear and consistent approach to regulatory framework in order to permit subdivisions and also uh, within communities permitting the uh, 
water and wastewater, public water and wastewater systems. And then uh, also for the legislature to consider. And in 2023, they took up quite a handful of our ideas and recommendations, uh, fit them to their own uh, their own expertise and also within the, the framework of our three branches of government, the legislature sets policy on that. Uh, so they passed a handful of laws that uh, we felt were, were very fit in order to improve the housing footprint across Montana. There isn't a community in Montana, Tom, where I haven't gone and people said, gosh, we need more affordable, available housing, uh, whether that's an entry home or whether that's your second step home, uh, Housing in Montana is a big deal, uh, and almost every community, especially high-growth communities, but I don't want to leave out rural communities, uh, housing is important. And uh, what the task force is doing right now, Tom, is uh, we're in our third phase. We're looking at uh, still how we can improve the delivery of housing across Montana uh, from a project-level view. So we're looking at projects that have been successful in communities across the state, and those that have not to outline challenges that we yet face and create a set of recommendations that are fit uh, to hopefully rectify some of those challenges and get people back uh, into affordable housing across the state. Yeah, and it's, it's important work, especially right now. I'm curious as I look at um, uh, a new manufacturer coming into central Montana, they're going to do a missile project there as well. They're kind of yep, doing their own right. housing um, development, um, which I, I think sort of sets a new precedent out there in some ways. Um, how does the housing task force like uh, view that? Or that's probably given you guys something to think about, hasn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, in terms of in terms of rapid delivery of, of homes, uh, in, in the case of, of the uh, uh, Sentinel project in, yeah, out, of, out of central Montana and the, the housing, that's a very unique situation. We have a large influx for a certain amount of time and, and uh, that that's a situation that we're aware of, but what we're really trying to do is just add supply at almost every level. And, and as that as that supply comes online, uh, a simple you know government approach that allows for a market response is the best solution we've come up with. Appreciate your time today, uh, Nancy. Always a, a pleasure to be able to to share our expertise together on the radio, uh, and Tom. Just a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, and again, congratulations. Uh, it, it's it's on all accounts, right? Um, right. Yeah. I'm going to take this as a big win, and I'm I'm definitely going to hang on to hang on to that for for not just not just me and the agency, but the individuals who really poured the work into it. Yep. Yep. That's that's what my uh, that's what I think about as well. Um, so give them a pat on the back for us too, Chris. I uh, appreciate that, and uh, you know, get back to work, right? Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> All right, thanks. Nancy Schlepp is in studio. Got a lot of things to cover here as we'll continue our conversation uh, with um, regarding the Black Butte Copper Project and a 5-2 decision by the Montana Supreme Court. They overturned a district court ruling that had invalidated the mining permit and uh, just got done talking with Director Chris Dorrington regarding that. Uh, and this was on all accounts. And I think that, Nancy, um, and, and thanks for being here. Appreciate that. Um, on all accounts, maybe was it comes as a bit of a surprise, but there was a lot of good work poured into this. 
Absolutely. And there were there were six counts the way we looked at that that went to the Montana Supreme Court. And the, the Supreme Court justices decided that they fit into three categories and decided to, to decide them in three categories. And really, those decisions were around processes of the Montana Department of Environmental Quality. Mm-hmm. And when we saw it that way, it made so much sense. That it was a very thoughtful decision. I can see why it took them several months to write it because it was extremely detailed. And so if there's any shift, you know, we talked about a little bit about shifts earlier. I think it's a shift to facts and science that we can't have a lot of emotion in these processes, that it has to be based on, um, on a, on documentation and on processes that are agreed upon across the board. And then we can have outcomes that everybody can live with and that we can, um, meet. And, and I, does that send a message to some of these conservation groups or environmental groups? And I, I think they're rethinking things as well, but it seems like uh, they just have this knee-jerk reaction um, to, to almost any development project out there, and that is to, well, we will just wait until this mine gets approved, and then we'll, we'll tie it up or, or we'll sue. Um, that's not really a great way to, to operate um, for the general public's behalf, so to speak, they may have their agendas regarding it, but um, do, do you think that this could send a message to, to those groups? I, I don't know if it sends a message specifically to those groups, but I, I think what it does is it possibly changes the narrative around mining. We had a pretty negative past. There were some awful things that happened in Montana around mining, and there's a lot of new technologies and a lot of things that mines have been doing well for years, but nobody really talked about them. And we've started talking about them. Other mines have started talking about them. And now we have new technologies that go with that. And so mining is a different world than it was even 50, 60 years ago. And I think there's becoming a recognition across the board and across Montanans that it can be done well and it can be done differently. And and then profitably as well, because it seems like uh, these groups that can delay these decisions and, and KC had noted as well, there's inflationary pressure. There's competition from uh, other countries that may not do it as well as we do. Um, Absolutely. And it's becoming a worldwide industry. I I think you're going to see almost any mine has um, investors from other areas. And, and as you guys all know, one, our major investor is out of Australia and now they have, top quality mines in Spain and in Botswana, in Australia, that they've just closed very successfully into protecting the environment. And, and now there will be one here. So the standard is rising worldwide as it should. How did Tintina get involved in this? And it goes back to that the origin story. Yeah, that's a great story. I, I love this yeah. story. And it all goes around uh, one of the, my favorite people, Jerry Zig, he's become um, like family to me. Uh, and he grew up in White Sulphur as well as I did and uh, went off and became a geologist and uh, at the University of Montana and came back and was working on this project in the 1980s looking for a zinc uh, for Kamenko. And they did not find zinc. They found copper. The company was not interested in copper, and they dropped their leases on this ranch land. And so Jerry went on with his career with Kaminko. And in 2008, when copper prices started rising, some local ranchers contacted him and said, we have been approached by 17, that's our anecdotal number, companies that want to lease this land. And, and the, if we develop this, we want you involved. And Jerry was working for a company at the time in Alaska who um, worked a lot with the, 
the native Eskimos there and had a really good approach to community. And he felt very comfortable bringing them to our community. So they were the, the first investors, um, over time, uh, that they were bought out, um, by, um, our Australian investors and fire resources, and they've been involved since 2014. You really like those guys though, don't we you? We do. Yeah. They are, they are top notch. They, they have the same philosophies when it comes to community and they, they spend a lot of time here. They know mining. Yeah. Uh, so um, I do hope that uh, this does have waves in my mind, you know, but for one thing, um, it, it's caused a wave um, over at Black Butte uh, Copper. Um, so are, are you firing up those cats now? What's oh, my the gosh. Phase two. We are absolutely thrilled. Uh, it is going to take us a, a little bit of time to gear up. Um, that's a very different world now than pre-COVID. It's some, some of the equipment we'll need is about a year out. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> some wow. of the contractors are pretty far out. And we actually have some studies that we need to complete to make sure that we can do this well. And uh, quite truthfully, we were kind of waiting to see if there were changes we needed to make from the Montana Supreme Court decision. So uh, starting to gear up, uh, it's going to be a little bit before we can really get going, but this is going to be a great economic driver for central Montana. Talk about where this mine is, and people were concerned about the Smith River. It's quite a ways off, but there's, uh, it's fair to be concerned about that watershed, Absolutely. which you guys were. But, yes, yeah. yeah. I think protecting every watershed everywhere in the United States is important, not just a, a specific one. And uh, this one's a very dear to my heart. We all hear about the Smith River, but Jerry Zig that I mentioned got married on the Smith River and took his honeymoon on it. Is that and right? uh, and my one of my first jobs was shuttling cars for the Smith River. So everyone in our community has a deep love and an understanding of the watershed. And uh, we absolutely need to protect it. Uh, it's, it's, it's vital. So the mine then takes up how much space? Oh, and- sorry. The second part of your question. Yeah. So yes, we are actually 17 miles north of White Sulphur Springs on the highway to Great Falls. Um, you turn on a county road, uh, right as the road, the highway turns 90 degrees to start climbing Kings Hill. So that's where we're located. The Smith River is actually 12 air miles away. Um, the closest water body to us is Sheep Creek. It's a small creek, and all of our energies have been put into protecting Sheep Creek. Because if we protect Sheep Creek, people enjoying the Smith River aren't even going to know we exist. What do you guys use the water for? So in the process, what we will use the water for is um, processing the ore. We'll need about um, 200 gallons a minute, a little over that, to process the ore in vats that will be... Um, 10 feet tall, 15 feet across. They look like huge washing machines. They agitate and there's bubbles like there would be in a washing machine that are made to adhere to copper. And the additive is actually a food additive. So the copper comes to the top um, after it's ground up really finely, 30 micron. It's like cutting a piece of salt 10 times. It's super, super small and it feels like powdered sugar and it looks like black powdered sugar. So the copper comes to the top on those bubbles. All of the rest, which are called tailings, go to the bottom, and that's how you separate it off. And then you use what I like to call a big spatula to take it off the top, and, and it goes to the next set of the process of creating a copper concentrate. Has, has that, um, that food uh, additive always been around, or is that sort of a new development? Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. It was uh, There was soap at the beginning. Every country likes to think that they um, were the ones that invented it, but our story is that there were um, folks washing their clothes in Butte, and they noticed that there was a lot of copper that 
came off with the soap. Mm. And, and so that's when they started using it. And I think that probably happened about the same time around the world. Ah. But um, that was how they, they knew that there was an additive um, soap-like in bubbles that would bring the copper to the surface. Oh, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's why uh, I love talking about this because, you know, like you said, it's uh, mining is a whole different deal than it was years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely, yeah. all, all those developments, um, and so uh, and copper, uh, it has become a very, very valuable resource as well. Even more valuable than when you started this. Um, talk about the economic impact of this. Yes, and so. Not only is this going to be a driver, but it's going to be really good for North American security. We have to have a supplies of our natural resources Thank here. You. And quite truthfully, we need to figure out how to smelter more of it here. A lot of our product goes overseas because uh, we haven't built new smelters in years. Uh, and so that's, that's one of my soapboxes. Um, but uh, worldwide, there's an increased need. Every windmill you see has four tons of copper in it. Every electric car you see has four to five amount of times of copper But the other big driver, which I think is good for the world, is that you have countries that were third world countries becoming second world countries. So you have a country like India that has massive population. One of the first things they want is refrigeration. Mm. And so you need electricity for that. And so there are electric wires going up everywhere so that people can have a better standard of living. And gosh, I think we should want that for everyone. And the copper concentration is is pretty high in this. uh, It is very high. In fact, um, it's second highest under development in the world. There's some operating mines that are higher, but there's the one higher than us right now under development in the Congo. So they're hard to find deposits. Um, our sits right under 3% total, which is pretty phenomenal in the world of copper. And we do have a lower zone that sometimes hits 6 to 8% copper, which is amazing. How many people are employed there? What do you think is the economic impact? So right now we sit at um, 18 employees and two contract employees. Most of our workers are contractors because mm-hmm. they needed to be independent third party so we could verify their work. When we're in operation, we'll have over 200 full-time employees, possibly up to 240. You're going to find houses for them? Well, this, again, wasn't a problem before COVID. Our community had a lot of empty houses. They no longer exist. So we spent a lot of time on on the housing issue as a community, getting ready, um, putting in for grants, and, and then the company trying to think ahead and and positively on how to solve this issue so that we can have a local workforce. We really want a work, local workforce. We're going to shift hats, though, because you're chair of the board of directors for the Montana Chamber of Commerce, and um, and you guys are all over the place, and you've done a, a great job already. I mean, this this probably happened not that long ago, and it's almost like another full-time job on top of your uh, other two full-time jobs. Uh, but you're teaching a Leadership Montana class uh, in something called Gracious Space, which for me is very intriguing. Yes, thanks. I, that's why I'm in Billings today is uh, Leadership Montana is meeting here today, and I'm lucky enough to be one of the, the teachers today in a, in a program that's called Gracious Space, which is a, a leadership style taught out of the um, Seattle um, School for Ethical Leadership. And, and so what I get to talk about today is called Learning in Public, and, uh, and I have a a co-person um, that's going to be teaching with me as as well, Jackie Atkins, who works for the Simmental Association in in Bozeman. Oh yeah, yeah. And so so what we'll be doing is is teaching about how to be super honest and vulnerable when you're answering questions and asking questions so that you can learn from each other and have a real authenticity while you do it. Wow, how do you do that and be guarded at the same time? You don't. Oh, really? It's very scary. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> what are some of those techniques then? You know, it, it's more about um, saying, asking questions like, uh, uh, tell, tell me more or having a... <laughs> Quite truthfully, um, I feel like we're losing our ability to have civil conversations. Everybody is so polarized on two sides of the issue. And, but there is a way to engage, to learn more about another issue without losing yourself. And, and so that is really what it is. If you said, um, I, I like the Grizzlies, I could say yes, and I like the Bobcats because that's where I went to school. So we can, we can disagree in a way that's agreeable. And I think we've started losing that as society, and I really hope we can all concentrate on bringing that back. I'm with you on that, uh, and that's what we try to do here as well, just that very Absolutely. same thing. It, it's, um, and we should hold ourselves to that standard, too, and we everybody should. else as much yes. as we can. So that's pretty cool. That's happening. Leadership Montana is a, one of those great courses that, uh, um, for folks, tell me about what Leadership Montana is. Yeah, so Leadership Montana has been around for for decades, and, and they really do teach um, leadership skills and, and you're with a, a class of about 40 people that you become good friends with for the rest of your life. And I went in thinking I was going to teach everyone a lot about natural resources, ranching and mining. And the truth is I learned a lot about myself and how to be a better person. And that's the whole goal of the, of the program. And another exciting thing, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it, but it's a sold-out course, but it's going on next week in Bozeman, the Women in Business Summit. We'll be there live for that, too. Um, you're interviewing uh, L- Lieutenant Governor Juris. I am. So as the the chair this year of the Montana Chamber, uh, I get to interview Lieutenant Governor Juris next week at the Women in Biv- Business Conference that we're having in Bozeman. It's the first uh, summit of women of its kind, and there's a waiting list. We are super excited. There are some great speakers. It's going to be a fantastic week. Yeah, congratulations on getting that sold out and, and, and the organization behind it, too. I'm looking at those keynote uh, speakers, and I'm very excited about it as well. It's so, a fabulous yeah. week. Yeah, and, 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 and you and Kristen are probably cut from the same cloth a little bit, aren't you? You know, uh, we, we agree on a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. Hey, Nancy, thank you again. Thank uh, you, You know, Tom. for the patience through all of this and the perseverance and all those folks that, that had a hand in it, you know, give them our thanks, too. I sure will pass that on. We're so thankful for everyone in the state of Montana and all the support we've gotten from everywhere. Thanks again for joining us for the podcast. Please share and subscribe and let us know what you think. Email me at tom at voicesofmontana.com. And don't forget, we're on weekdays on your hometown radio stations all across Montana. We hope to hear from you there, too.